Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I am your host, Laura Reeves. Here at the Good Dog Pod, we are all about supporting dog breeders and responsible dog ownership. We provide dog lovers with the latest updates in canine health and veterinary care, animal legislation and legal advocacy, canine training and behavior science, and dog breeding practices. Subscribe and join our mission today to help give our dogs the world they deserve. Welcome to the Good Dog podcast, as well as the Good Dog webinar series. We have Dr. Casey Carl here from Paw Print Genetics, and we have Dr. Judy Stella, who is the head of standards and all the good stuff at Good Dog, who will be helping and running questions. And I'm here to just kind of keep everybody in line. They gave me a whip and a chair, so we're good to go. Some of you will have heard the podcast that we did with Dr. Carl earlier. This is part two. So you are familiar with his fabulous presentation style. So Dr. Carl, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm super excited to talk about this stuff. So hit it. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, I'm very excited to be here as well. And got a few different things that we can talk about today. I got a very hot topic and a somewhat controversial topic at times is Merle coat color. And that's kind of next on our list here. Merle is caused by a mutation in what we call the PMEL gene. There are two basic alleles to this gene here, one of which is the actual Merle variant, which is notated by a capital M because it is a dominant mutation. And that is dominant to non-Merle. But Merle's a little unique. Merle is caused by a piece of DNA that's been inserted into this gene called the PMEL gene. And this piece of DNA that's been inserted in there is very unstable from generation to generation. It's very unstable when a cell has to replicate itself during development, for example. So when a dog is developing, all of these cells in the dog have to be replicated in order to produce more cells for the dog. And they actually have to reproduce all of the genetic material for that dog in each and every cell. Even if it's not necessarily expressed in that cell, all of that material is here. And when it comes to Merle, when the body is trying to replicate this particular area of the genome where the Merle mutation exists, it's not very good at doing that. And it ends up resulting in the size of that Merle mutation changing to some degree. And the change in the size of that mutation is what's responsible for giving us the very wide variability in appearance that we see in Merle dogs, all the way from dogs that have a copy of the Merle mutation that don't look Merle at all, all the way up through a dog that has more of a Harlequin, or in this case, this looks more like a classical appearance here, but dogs that would have a Harlequin appearance where they have white separating these areas of a full pigmentation. And Merle is defined as essentially random regions of fully pigmented hair separated by either dilute regions, kind of this gray dilute color like we saw with the D locus. It looks very similar to that. Or in some cases, white, which we would see in like, as I mentioned, our Harlequin colored dogs. And as I mentioned, the size of that M locus mutation is associated with the overall differences in Merle appearance. Here we're showing that we've got four different groups that at Popprint Genetics, we've kind of essentially grouped all of these dogs into. And there are other schemes out there. There are some other schemes that separate these into additional groups. But we found that these four groups tend to give us most of what we were needing to know about these dogs. Now, the boundaries between these groups are not really definite boundaries. There are definitely dogs that can have a size of a Merle mutation, which falls in these other groups. And these numbers here are just representing the number of base pairs that we find in this particular mutation. And this gives us the overall size here. 
classic Merle dogs, like this dog here that has the M267 disappearance here, it tends to fall in this 265 to 269 range. However, as you notice here, the dog directly above it is also a 267, and it doesn't have quite the classic look. It almost looks a little bit more of a diluted look or kind of an atypical look where it doesn't quite have fully pigmented regions that are quite as obvious as this dog. And so this is just showing that, you know, there is some variation in each of these sizes. But in general, they tend to fall out into these kind of general groups of the cryptic, atypical, classic, and harlequin. Harlequin, like I mentioned, is a little bit of a unique color that is defined here by dogs that have this fully pigmented region, but white in between all of the colored portions. These dogs can also end up having a pattern here that we refer to as tweed or patchwork, where they may have different shades of that colored portion in there, but then they would have white. Now, it's important to note that this is different than Great Dane Harlequin that we see, and I'm going to talk about that here in just a moment. But there is actually a different genetic underpinning for Harlequin that we see in Danes in addition to Merle that is really important for them, and we'll talk about that here in just a moment. So Merle breeding does have a huge responsibility when it comes to breeding because breeding two Merle dogs together can end up resulting in disease or in a situation that we refer to as double Merle, sometimes referred to as lethal white or a variety of other things, sometimes referred to as double dapple in dachshunds because dapple is the terminology that tends to be used there in them. But dogs that inherit two copies of a functional Merle mutation may end up looking like these dogs. And by functional, I mean that the size of the mutation is above the cryptic Merle size. So the dogs that inherit very small versions of the Merle mutation may not actually appear Merle at all. And so that can be quite confusing. We often refer to those dogs as cryptic Merle dogs. And where we get concerned about breeding Merle dogs is that sometimes these cryptic Merle dogs can actually have the size of their Merle mutation enlarged to some degree. And if their Merle mutation enlarges and that gets passed on to their offspring, and then that offspring also inherits a larger version of the Merle mutation from the other parent, then they might end up like these dogs here, which tend to be nearly all white. They quite often will have hearing or vision deficiencies. In some cases, they'll actually have developmental abnormalities of the eye, like in this Great Dane here. This Great Dane actually has what we call microophthalmia, which is an underdevelopment of the eyes. I think the dachshund may actually be showing some of that as well here. Typically, these dogs are not going to be visual, whereas we have over here on the right, we've got an Australian Shepherd that looks like it probably is able to see but it could potentially be deaf. It's very common that these double merles are deaf and can be quite, quite challenging for people, obviously. So, you know, it's really important to not breed two merle dogs together. At Popper Genetics, we've taken the stance that we recommend not breeding two dogs together if they both carry the merle mutation, regardless of what that size is. I know that there are people out there that will argue in favor of actually breeding cryptic merle to merle dogs. It's just not something that we have felt comfortable with recommending because there is this rare chance that possibly these dogs could end up resulting in double merle dogs if these cryptic merles have that enlarged, as I mentioned. So that's our current take on this is that we would not recommend breeding two merle dogs together, regardless of whether one of them is cryptic merle or not. It just would not be recommended. As I mentioned, Great Danes can also have a harlequin coat color appearance. But they have a different mutation at what we refer to as the H locus that they have to inherit along with Merle in order to actually get their appearance. Both of the variants are considered dominant in the sense that it only requires one copy of each of these to actually give this color. So this Harlequin Dane down here on the bottom has one copy of Merle and one copy of the Harlequin variant that is unique to Great Danes. And that's what gives them this great color here. 
the reason that it's important to consider testing for this in Great Danes, the H locus variant in Danes, is because some dogs that carry Harlequin, that have one copy of Harlequin, actually appear mantle. So this dog that we have up here, this dog could actually be a carrier of Harlequin and we wouldn't know it by simply looking at them. The reason that's concerning is if you breed two dogs together that have Harlequin, just like we talked about with Merle, two dogs that are bred together with Harlequin, they don't actually produce a disease that allows them to live, but they will actually typically pass away in utero. And so two Great Danes, if we breed them together, if they're both carrying Harlequin, they will pass away in utero and it will typically end up resulting in about 25% smaller litter size because those dogs don't ever make it to be born. It's incredibly important to not breed two Harlequin Danes together because not only are they both carrying Harlequin, but they're also carrying Merle together. So this is a situation where we could get into, again, these double Merles. So no Merle dog should be bred to an actual Harlequin Dane. We wouldn't want to breed two Merles together. We wouldn't want to breed two Harlequins together. Basically, the ideal breeding, if we want to keep our litters large and we want to try to get Harlequin Danes, the ideal situation would be to breed a mantle dog that actually carries the Harlequin variant to a Merle dog. And in that case, we would end up with about 25% of the litter would be Harlequin. Another 25% would actually be Merle as well. But the remaining 50% would be dictated by the other areas of the genome in terms of their colors. But this would be an ideal way to breed Harlequin Danes without having to deal with any in utero death or without being concerned about the double Merle situation. So this testing can be very helpful for breeding these dogs. Next one we have here on the list is the S. locus. And the S. locus is an important genetic variant in a lot of different breeds. It's often referred to also as the spotting locus. It's found in the MIT-F or MITF gene. There are two basic alleles that we talk about here the capital S for no spotting, and then that is typically dominant to the party or the SP. And I say that it's usually dominant to them because there are occasions where perhaps dogs can actually have some kind of semi-dominant traits associated with one copy of this mutation, meaning that if they inherit one copy of SP, there are occasionally dogs that may show a random white spot somewhere on the body or something like that related to that. It's not very common that that happens. Most of the time, it does require two copies of SP for a dog to get that white. And when they do, they would be considered what we call party in poodles or piebald in a lot of other breeds, where basically greater than 50% of the dog will actually be white. The colored portion will be determined by the other areas of the genome, but they would typically be more than 50% white. And this is a very random pattern of white on the dog. We have other causes of white which are not so random. We also have other causes of white, as I mentioned, that can cause an extreme white appearance or other causes of white that we don't know yet. This is just one cause of white that we really do have an understanding of, and it is a very common cause of white in a variety of breeds. As I mentioned in the poodle, we call it party. Not something we typically would see in the show ring, but you definitely do see it out there in poodles. Now, it is important to note that there is another very important cause of white in dogs that is not caused by the S. locus. However, the S. locus can actually modify this appearance. And this is referred to as Irish spotting in most breeds. It can also be referred to as abstract in poodles. But this is the white. It can be a variable amount of white. In some cases, it's only seen just on the chest or the toes. But this is often referred to as Irish white spotting. And it's the white that we see on the chest, the tips of the toes and the tail. Sometimes it comes up between the eyes like we see here in this Bernese Mountain Dog. In some breeds, it comes up around the collar that's commonly seen in the Australian Shepherd. But it is isolated to only these areas. This would not be considered party because it's not random around the dog. So this is a different color. 
As I mentioned, and it is the cause of the white that we see in tricolor dogs, that is the white. Now, as I mentioned, it's not caused by the S locus or the SP variant. That's not why this Irish spotting is there to begin with. But if a dog does inherit Irish spotting and it also gets one copy of party, the SP variant, then the white that we have in all of these areas tends to be expanded to some degree. And so the white that we would see on the chest, the toes, the tip of the tail, all of that would be expanded out and they would tend to have more white in those areas. It's not the reason it's there to begin with, but it can play a role in causing it to be more pronounced. The specific genetic variant for the Irish spotting, this pattern is not known at this time. And so we can't necessarily predict that. But in some cases, if they get that together with the party variant, they will have more white on them in those regions. I know we're talking mostly about purebred dogs and some mixed breed or hybrid dogs. Sometimes people will use this to our advantage to try to get more white in these regions in some breeds. Somebody had sent in a question beforehand asking about tuxedo markings or abstract marks in dogs. They had asked if it was caused by party coloration or if there is another gene involved. And as I mentioned, there is another gene involved. The SP can definitely play a role in causing tuxedo or mismarks in dogs by causing that white to be more pronounced. But it's definitely not the only factor involved there. We have this other unknown factor yet that we're still dealing with in order to try to get that appearance. So that is kind of a rundown of the colors. I want to check in with Dr. Stella here to see what, if any, questions we had regarding some of those so we can address those. Yeah, we did have a few questions. So if you don't mind, let's do the colors and then we can get back yeah. into the sheets. So just starting from the white, what if only there's white on the chest, not on the toes and the tail? Is that still Irish spotting? Yeah, it is. It's still considered Irish spotting. It's highly variable how much white they will get. And so yeah, you can find it just on the chest. Sometimes it'll be just on the toes. It can be variable, and we don't have a great way of predicting that yet as to where it will necessarily be located. We have a question about specifically in Aussies, but we'll see which gene causes excessive white. Yeah, we don't know. We don't know yet. It's something that's definitely out there. It is one of the causes of excessive white is also associated with deafness as well, and so that's a big concern in some breeds. But at this point, we just don't know. There's a lot of questions. So <laughs> that's um, fine. Let's answer them. Yeah, there's lots of them. Judy, there was one that I'll leapfrog with you so we can do this together. Okay. <laughs> okay yeah, uh, no, that's the only way we're going to do it. The one that I thought was really interesting, Dr. Carl, is Lou Heifner asked in your razors, the coat color seems to evolve throughout their lives. Is there a genetic explanation for morphing coat color? Not yet. Not yet. Potentially in the future, there will be, but at this time, anything that, that type of changing, we don't really have a good grip on yet. Okay. We had one, if a dog is EMEM, -E so big E, little M, twice, big, how do you breed away yeah. from the melanistic mask? To start with, you would have to find a dog that doesn't carry it at all and breed the dog that has two copies of mask to that dog. In that first generation, you would get an entire litter that would still have mask. They would have one copy of it, but since it's dominant, they would still be able to produce a mask if they happen to be fawn or sable. It would take you two generations to get to the point where you would stop producing that mask. So if you took one of those puppies that had one copy and you bred it back again to another dog that was clear for mask or didn't have it, then you would start getting into a situation where you would start getting some dogs without the mask. So it would take a couple generations to get there, but you could definitely do it by breeding back to a clear dog. And so we had a question, too, that somebody has a red fawn dog with a black mask. And the question is, is that dog really sable? Fawn and sable genetically kind of fall into the same category, at least from what we can test for right now. So the A and the K locus play a role in creating fawn or sable. 
And there are probably some other genetic factors that play a role in individual breeds as to whether they actually become fawn or sable, but technically, genetically, they're very similar at the A and K locus. And so, yes, I would still consider that dog to be a fawn or sable. And the actual light color of the fawn or sable can vary in the exact same way that the E locus can vary. The light color in the fawn or sable, or even the light color in the tan points, can vary in the exact same way that dogs that are little e, little e can vary in color, almost from that pure white up through that fox red. And we don't have that fully worked out yet as to how that all works. But you can still see that large variation. And it depends on the breed. It depends on the genetic background of the individual. So there's some other factors there that we don't know yet. Okay. So what can you tell about the Rufus gene and how do we know if a dog is a carrier? We don't yet. Nobody has determined what that is yet. There has been a fairly recent discovery of a mutation that is believed to perhaps enhance the intensity of some of these colors. I've read over the paper a little bit. Nobody is offering it currently, and I'm not sure how widespread that specific mutation might be in order to explain some of these things, but it could explain some similar phenomenon as kind of the darkening. But at this point, we, as far as I'm aware, there's not a specific mutation associated with that Rufus characteristic, which is often talked about in poodles, where they actually become more dark in their red color as they age. Right now, at this time, as far as I'm aware, there's not a specific mutation that can be tested for that would identify that. Somebody asked about cryptic merle and chihuahuas. Is the cryptic merle the same in all breeds? Yeah, it is. So in all breeds, potentially that could have any breed or any dog that has Merle in their line potentially could have cryptic Merle as a phenomenon in there. In order to test for cryptic Merle, you just have to do a standard M locus test. And with us at Pawprint, we actually will size it and tell you kind of what you're looking at. And if the dog is a cryptic Merle, we would expect that size to be very small on the small end of the scale. And I think you touched on the grain gene. We don't have a test for that yet, correct? Yeah, we don't yet. We don't yet. It is different than the D-locus, as I mentioned. The D-locus is responsible for producing that gray or dilute appearance in dogs from the time they're born, whereas that progressive gray or fading is going to be something that would be seen after birth, and we don't have the genetics behind that one that causes the change after. Okay, we had a question. How does Sable arrive, and what are the modifiers? So sable, as I mentioned, is the same as fawn. And if we were looking at it from the foundational coat color perspective, the K and the A locus both play a role in that. And how it works with the A and the K locus, the way I think about it is the K locus is essentially the on-off switch for the A locus. And the A locus is what actually codes for fawn, sable, or tan points in dogs. In order for the A locus to actually be turned on, though, in a dog, a dog would have to be what we refer to as KYKY at the K locus. And if a dog is KYKY, that turns on their A locus. And if they have the appropriate genetics at the A locus, then they would be either fawn or sable, depending on the breed or their genetic background. Fawn or sable is typically coded for by AY at the A locus. And AY is the most dominant of the various alleles that can be present at the A locus. There are actually four different alleles that we look at at the A locus. And AY is the most dominant. So if a dog is KYKY, which meaning it's turn on that A locus, and then if they also have one copy of AY, then we would expect them to fall somewhere in that fawn to sable color pattern. And as I mentioned, we don't really understand fully why some dogs would be more towards sable and more towards fawn and other dogs. There's some variants there that we don't fully understand yet. And is that where the clear sable falls in? in that? Yeah. Okay. Yes, I believe that what most people refer to, they can refer to it as a clear sable, or in some cases in dogs that have like a sable appearance that's more red, like for instance in dachshunds, it's referred to as shaded red. 
there can be potentially some variation on that theme. In all breeds, they have some variants there. The underlying genetic variants are very similar in a lot of breeds, across breeds, but there is some variation on the nuances of each of these colors for each breed because each breed does have kind of their own genetic background. And all of this background is still what we don't yet know in many cases. And so there can be some slight variability to these themes depending on the breed. Okay, so we have a few more questions about white spotting. So what about white spotting on colored bull terriers? I don't know necessarily. It depends on what that white looks like. As I mentioned, the S locus is really the only one that we can technically test for. So if it's a random smattering of white on the dog, I do know that in a variety of those breeds, the S locus does play a role in the piebald appearance of those dogs. If the white is isolated to just those areas of the chest, toes, tail, and perhaps around the collar, as we mentioned earlier, that would fall into that Irish white spotting, which would not be something that we could test for. As I mentioned, the white is tricky because there are some unknown variants out there that could cause white potentially, and we wouldn't be able to know. But if you tested that dog at the S locus, if it had white on it, that could give you an indication as to where they're getting it. But again, if it's in those areas isolated to the chest, toes, and tail, that is probably going to be more likely that Irish spotting. And then did we touch on the brindle? Because I know we had a couple of questions that people had written in about it beforehand and somebody else yeah. is talking about brindle and yeah. brindle points. Brindle is interesting. So we understand, we know what the genetic mutation is that causes brindle, but it is difficult to test for. And at this point, as far as I'm aware, there's not anybody actually actively testing for it out there. It is a mutation that involves the K locus. And all brindle dogs will come up as what we refer to as KBKY at the K locus when they're brindle. However, not all KBKY dogs are brindle. It's just that when a dog is brindle, that's always the way that the test result shows because there essentially are components of both the KB and KY allele within the brindle mutation. And so both are seen when we see these dogs. Brindle can be isolated to just the points on a dog or it can be spread across the whole dog. And what determines that is the A and the K locus. So if the dog would have otherwise been fawn or sable and it also inherits brindle, that fawn or sable dog will actually have a full body brindle on them. Whereas if the dog would have otherwise just had tan points and they also inherit brindle, the brindle will be isolated to just the tan pointed regions of the dog when they get that. And so that's why some dogs only have them on the points is because they are technically a dog that genetically also codes for tan points. And that's the only place that that brindle will show up. Unfortunately, as I mentioned at this time, we don't have a way to really test for that. Dogs that are brindle in actuality can have two copies of brindle, or they can actually have one copy of the brindle mutation and one copy of KY at the K locus. Either way, when we do the genetic testing, as I mentioned, they're all going to come out as KBKY on testing. But we kind of understand how this is inherited, and you can't tell by looking at a brindle dog whether they actually carry two copies of brindle or one copy of brindle, and whether they would pass it on to 100% of their puppies or only 50% of their puppies. We can't tell that at this time. So it would require breeding to really know that right now. That's interesting. So how about we do two more? So one, somebody asked about the genetic makeup of Dalmatians, which is interesting. Dalmatians, yeah. And I don't know that that's actually known at this time. In addition to that tick marking in a lot of breeds, like we see in like in the pointers and things, that white that we see there, that pattern is not yet understood from a genetic perspective. And Judy, real quick, as a follow-up to that, I saw a couple of questions on this, roaning, ticking, spotting, yeah. all of that. Is that falling in that same category? As it is. Or that's going a different direction? You know, I'd have to go back and look now on the Dalmatian because I think there are some genetics behind that that have been identified. 
In terms of the droning and any of that type of tick marking, none of that has been worked out. So those are still a little bit of a mystery to us about how that works. Okay, and then one last one about Merle. So somebody's asking, is there any way for Merle to hide in little e, little e dogs in a specific breed for decades without expressing indefinite blindness or other health issues? Yeah, there is. Any little e, little e dog could also technically be Merle and you'd have no idea. And the reason being is that little e, little e dogs cannot produce that black or brown in their hair coat. And so you can't see the differentiation which occurs with the Merle variant. And so, yes, that could happen for a very long time. And as long as two little e, little e dogs, as long as two of those dogs weren't bred together, both carrying Merle, then you may never get a double Merle dog. It would be required that both of those dogs do carry functional versions of Merle in order for that to be the case. But yes, it's very common that that happens where the little e, little e can mask any brown or black color. Things like that happen quite commonly in a variety of breeds, including even like the Golden Retriever. Many golden retrievers actually technically have genetics for tan points, and you'd never know it by just simply looking at them because that black or that tan color, it can't be differentiated. Interesting. Laura, did I miss anything else? Did you see anything uh, else that's guilty There's us? so much, you know. <laughs> <laughs> there's so Trying much. To on, like, well, the highlights. I, I it just means we've got to do this again. That's <laughs> all it means. We're totally going to have to do it again. All right, Cruz. Thank you all for joining us. This has been part two. Watch this space. Part three will be coming up. Good Dog is a secure online community that advocates for dog breeders, educates the public, helps informed puppy buyers connect directly with certified good breeders, and promotes responsible dog ownership. Good Dog is offering its good breeders special advanced access to the video recordings and transcripts for the full three-part Q&A webinar series with Dr. Hutchinson. All you have to do is sign up as a breeder at gooddog.com slash join. That is G-O-O-D-D-O-G dot com slash join. Or click the link in the show notes.